2.0, Heart of the Matter, that's what this is. I'm Sean McCraney, your host, and I'm so excited because I get to introduce part two of John Dillon's interview uh, where he actually gets to uh, tell his story, and we saw part one last week, part two tonight, part three next week. Wait for that, look for that. Uh, it's been a great time and already had a lot of response from it. Following that, on May 15th, we're going to pre-record uh, two or three or four hours, we'll see, of John, after 10 years, going back and doing a Mormon Stories with me, a follow-up as to what's happened with us and where we are. And so that, those are going to start airing on uh, Tuesday, May 15th, and then the following week, the 22nd, and then the following week, the 29th. So we're going to have almost six weeks and maybe more of John and Sean and talking about this. And, you know, I just got to tell you, I got to be really open here. I hope John and I can partner up. I publicly am just saying this. John reaches a people, many of them who really don't care anymore about God. They've been burned by religion, being Mormon. And so he talks with them about things and he leads them and they have get-togethers and fellowship. That's their choice and that's fine. But there may be people within his circle of influence and his circle of influence is big, especially in this state who uh, still have an interest in knowing God and, and understanding who he is and Jesus and, and the faith. And so I'm hoping that John would direct them to uh, us so that we can help them see what a relationship is without religion. And I'm talking about without any religion, none, zero. Why is that important? Because there are these little fiefdoms around the state and they call themselves churches, and they call themselves Christian churches, and they're sitting there waiting for people who have left Mormonism to slip into their clutches and put them in bondage. They put them in religious bondage, and it could be to authority, it could be to commandments, it could be to marital status, it could be to doctrine, it could be to financial obligation. Just last Sunday, I got a... I got a, a, a something from a church here locally, one of the biggest churches, and uh, they went on to spend the whole time together with their congregation talking about money, talking about giving more money. And, and when John interviews me, we're going to get into those churches and talk about that. People coming out of Mormonism, people coming out of any religion, they do not need to be burdened with money. Money is tough to come by. It's not easy. We all struggle with it. Where God guides, God provides. And that's what the message should be. Pastors are constantly telling their congregates, trust the Lord, trust the Lord, give it to the Lord, He'll do it. These pastors should be trusting the Lord with their well-being in their ministries and in their churches, and they're not doing it. So we'll be talking all about that. But right now, let's go to part two with John DeLynn. Hey, we're with John DeLynn. This is part two, uh, founder of Mormon Stories, PhD, CEO and co-originator of Open Stories Foundation. And uh, if you didn't see part one, you should take the time to watch it because you'll see a side of John that is really fascinating and uh, it, at, it lends to a tremendous foundation of personal integrity in my estimation. Uh, and that's important when you balance what he has continued to do just to see how that plays into who he is. So right now we want to spend some time um, going forward from the time that you 
graduated BYU, married, did your time with the church for their um, general authority, and then what started to happen from there? So I, I got my dream job, I thought, uh, in 1997-ish. I went to work for Microsoft in, in Seattle. So it's like every, at the time, that was every tech guy's dream was to work for Microsoft, get the stock options, go you know go to the mecca with Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer and mm. and uh, dominate the world <laughs> through software. So we moved to to Seattle and we're active in our ward there in Issaquah and uh, was really having a great time. Uh, was starting to make really really good money and travel the world. I uh, had a very meteoric rise in the company had back-to-back double promotions two years in a row and was a director just a few years into my time there and was really on the fast track. Um, but uh, there was just that dark that dark sort of space that I referred to in the last episode just wouldn't go away. And Frank Capra wouldn't go away. Just this, like, you have to live a meaningful life. You have to live a meaningful life. And... So it was cool to have stock options and no Bill Gates and to make a ton of money, but I felt empty inside and it wasn't, it wasn't filling me. So, but I didn't, you know, have words to put to it. And I was, you know, we were having kids. We had, we ended up having four kids and uh, really busy. So Microsoft can just consume your life. Uh, so what happened was um, just, uh, you know, like, uh, the bishop asked, ended up asking me to teach Sunday school. So I taught Sunday school, and I taught the bishop's daughter in Sunday school. And she really liked me as a teacher. So she recommended to the bishop uh, that I teach seminary. So around 2000, 2001, I was called to, ter- to teach early morning seminary. Hmm. And so... Uh, I started just, I'm, I'm going to be the best seminary teacher I could be. I had a, you know, Elder Layton, President Elder Layton was my seminary teacher, and I'm going to be like, you know, Lawrence Layton, but for these students. And and so, and so I just thought I'm going to, you know, really dig into the Book of Mormon. That was the first year was Book of Mormon, and then the second year was Doctrine and Covenants. So I did a full year of Book of Mormon and really read the Book of Mormon in depth. Mm. Um, and was just starting to hit things. I was starting to notice some inconsistencies. I was starting to notice some problems with the narrative. But at the time, it was all about like inspiring these young students mm-hmm. and motivating them and and helping them be the best that they could be to give them a great experience. But I was throwing in a little polygamy. I was throwing in a little bit of uncorrelated materials. I wanted to inoculate them mm-hmm. so that they wouldn't be surprised you know, with some of the church history. And I thought I knew church history. I thought I, oh, I knew there was polygamy and Brigham practiced it and, you know, that, that sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. So um, somewhere along this time period, Margie and I make a trip to Utah to visit my cousin, who's a, a dermatologist down in Orem. His name's uh, Ricky Parkinson. And he, I, I think I probably mentioned to him that I was teaching seminary by this point. And this is, again, like 2000, 2001, and he's like, did you ever hear the story about the book of Abraham? And I was like, no, what do you mean? Well, you know those hieroglyphics that are in the Book of Mormon and the papyri? Goes, yeah, I've heard about that. 
he's like, did you know that they were discovered, you know, in the 60s? Mm. That we thought that they were burned. You know, I didn't know any of this. He's like, they were burned in a fire and they thought they were thought to be lost and then they were discovered. Mm. And then the church was super stoked to have Egyptologists translate the papyra to show that the book of Abraham was scripture. And I'm just like on the edge of my seat thinking this can't be real, mm. you know? And he's like, yeah. And then the Egyptologists found out that the word Abraham doesn't even appear anywhere in the scrolls, let alone have anything to do with the text that Joseph Smith produced. Mm. And at first I was just like, oh, he's just being controversial. And oh, that's, but then I just like really sunk in me. I'm just like, oh my gosh, that is one of the most interesting stories I've ever heard. And I'm 31 and I've never heard that story before. So I was like, well, what else don't I know? And so I started uh, really studying church history in depth. So I got the Church History in the Fullness of Times Institute Manual, this big green thick book, mm. and I read through it, you know, and it, Kirtland Bank Scandal and Hans Mill Massacre and Mountain, you know, and it didn't, men, it didn't mention, I don't think, Mountain Meadows. I could have it wrong, but like in my memory, mm -hmm. it left out some stuff, but it, it certainly was open about certain things. And so I was like, I need more. So after that, it was like Richard Bushman. I got Joseph Smith in the beginnings of early Mormonism, mm -hmm. which was the predecessor to Rough Stone mm -hmm. Rolling, where he talks about kind of everything that led up to Joseph Smith's kind of early ministry. And I didn't know a lot of that stuff. And I had heard about Michael Quinn's, you know, uh, Mormonism in the early magic worldview, or whatever it was called, but I never read it. So I started reading Michael Quinn and mm -hmm. I read his series on power, the the origins, origins of power and the extensions of power. And I, you know, I read in there things like David O. McKay or, or Hubie Brown tried to get blacks the priesthood in the 60s mm -hmm. and then it was scuttled last minute. And like, we could have like saved like 10 years of racism mm -hmm. if like the brethren hadn't outvoted like Hubie Brown. And I started learning all these things and it was like this rabbit hole. I just, and then I started reading, um, you know, uh, uh, Richard, um, I started reading Grant Palmer mm. and I started reading Simon Southerton, his mm. book, uh, Losing a Lost Tribe mm. and and and, um, and Grant Palmer's An Insider's View of Mormon Origins. And then I also uh, finally, kind of the, the pinnacle of my studies was Fawn Brody's mm. No Man Knows My History. Mm. And of course, I always viewed that book as evil and dark and as, scary and is, uh, you know, uh, anti-Mormon. Mm. And then I'm reading it and it's like one of the most entertaining mm -hmm. books I've ever read. Mm -hmm. It's just this gripping page turner mm. and it's accurate and it's fun and it's interesting. And, and, and it's actually in some ways kind to Joseph Smith, but it just, it, it peeled the covers back on who Joseph really was. Wow. And, and that was like, I'm just like, by the time I got done with that book, I just remember sitting at my kitchen table in Seattle and it was the first time where I allowed myself to just, I allowed myself to think the thought, is it possible that it's not true? Hmm. And that was, that was like the big switch because I'm like, if it's true, if the church is true, then this is super complex and fraught. Mm. But if it's not true, 
everything immediately makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Everything. Wow. Kind of that Occam's razor moment, yeah. right? And so I remember like pulling Margie aside and just saying, Margie, I know I've been like depressed for two years and obsessed about reading things and like distracted and unavailable as a husband and a father in some ways, but I just want you to know that the culmination of all this pain and suffering. And I had to resign as seminary teacher. I resigned mid-semester, like wow. DNC, I'm getting into sections 10, 15, and I'm just like, this is not gonna work. And I started teaching the real history and the CES would send monitors to watch me teach. And then like, you can't say that, you can't say that, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I'm teaching like truth. This is real. Mm -hmm. These kids need to know. And they weren't having any of it. So I resigned my calling as seminary teacher a year and a half into it. And I told Margie that I didn't believe the church was true anymore. And she just starts crying, you know, and, and, um, but she really gathered a composure mm. quickly. Mm. And I said, will you just read No Man Knows My History? That's just, that's all I ask, just read this book. And she, to her credit, she's a reader. She reads mm. like two or three books a week sometimes. She read it, she comes back to me and she says, okay, what are we gonna do now? Wow. So I didn't have to deal with any of this mixed faith marriage mm. stuff mm. or I never worried that she would leave me. I was really, I picked her mm. knowing that she would choose me over the church. Mm -hmm. And so that was never a problem we had to deal with. It was more, what do we do? Mm. But because BYU had primed me for liberal Mormonism, mm -hmm. I, w I just, I said, well, I'll, what did Eugene England do? And what did Lowell Benyon do? And what did T. Edgar Lyon do? And what did Leonard Arrington do? Mm -hmm. So I started reading more and more about this progressive Mormonism that I had that I had discovered at BYU. Mm. And then I like on the internet stumbled on Sunstone, mm. saw that the September 6th had just had like a 15 or 20 year anniversary and heard, found out that it, like Levina Fieldy Anderson still attends church. You know, um, you know, Maxine Hanks ends up getting rebaptized. Mm. Avram Gileadi gets rebaptized. Mm. Like four or five of the September 6th either got rebaptized or or still attend. Mm. I'm like, we could do this. Mm. We could do this. <laughs> Michael Quinn still believes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like mm. to this day, Michael Quinn still mm. believes. So I'm like, well, I don't have to leave. Mm. I'll just like, I'll, I'll, help, I'll help lead a transformation within the church. Mm. And I had read Kaim Potok's books. Mm. So Kaim Potok is this famous Jewish author who was writing books in the 50s and 60s and 70s and it was all about how Judaism used to be Orthodox and they used to view the Bible, the Old Testament, literally, mm. and the Talmud and the Torah and every word's perfect, right? Mm. And, and then the Holocaust happens and Jews are like, if this is what it means to be God's chosen people, we're not interested. Mm. And they start leading the forefront of art and Hollywood and science and academia mm. and becoming atheists and questioning God. And, but then you know what the Jews do? they form a new branch of Judaism mm. called Reformed Judaism. Mm. And in Reformed Judaism, you can be an atheist. Mm. You don't even have to believe that Moses, the founder of your religion, existed. Mm. And you can still be a Jew. Mm. You can be an atheist rabbi. Mm. You can be a lesbian or a gay rabbi. Like, and I'm like, whoa, what if Mormonism, what if we could do a Reformed Mormonism movement mm. where you can not take the Book of Mormon literally, 
you don't have to follow the brethren, obey them blindly, but you can still have all the tradition, all the mm. dance festivals mm. and youth conferences and temple trips and stake mm. dances and youth programs and seminary and like, I don't want to give all that awesome stuff up. You, know? you want your kids to have all that? Yeah, I want my kids to have it. I wanted the world to have it. Okay. So let's just make Mormonism honest and cool. You know, mm. like that was like, that's how I came out. So I didn't leave the church. We stayed active. I grew some facial hair. I started wearing Birkenstocks to church, mm. but you know, I looked a little bit disheveled, mm. but I'm like, we're going to, we're going to fix this. So I got more and more depressed in my job, more and more feeling this urge to do something. And by 2004, I'm just like, I can't do this anymore. So I literally just resigned my position at Microsoft. Wow. Top of my game. I had made over $200,000 that year. Mm. And you only get, you only increase. You don't mm. decrease at Microsoft. Wow. You increase. And I just walked away. We had, you know, paid off our cars and we were coming close to paying off our house. And I just like, I just resigned. And moved to Logan in 2004. And I enrolled in a PhD program in the instructional technology, which at the time was kind of ed educational technology. Okay. And that was right when Web 2.0 was emerging. So in 2004, podcasts would have first been invented. Mm. Blogs would have, you know, just right been invented. And, you know, the precursor to MySpace, which was the precursor to Facebook, mm. was all erupting in that kind of 2004 timeframe. The iPods were just mm -hmm. getting rolled out. The iPhones were kind of a, a gleam in, in Steve Jobs' eyes. Wow. And I learned about uh, social media and Web 2.0 that year, that first year of my uh, master's PhD program in instructional technology. And by that, by the end of that, and I attended Sunstone again. So in 2004, first thing I do when I moved to Salt Lake that summer is I seek out Sunstone. And I meet Dan Witherspoon, who is the head of Sunstone. Mm -hmm. I meet Armand Moss. I meet Michael Quinn. I meet, you know, Greg Prince. I meet all the kind of celebrity, mm -hmm. you know, intellectual Mormons mm -hmm. uh, that I had been reading about that were still alive. I mean, Leonard Arrington was dead by then. Mm -hmm. Lil Benyon was dead. Tiger Lyon was dead. But there was still all the September 6th were there, Maxine Hanks mm -hmm. and, you know, Paul and Margaret Toscano, they're all milling around Sunstone. And I'm like, it is time to whoop up. It's time to whoop up on Mormonism and, and whoop things into shape. So I, you know, met with the dialogue board. I met with the Sunstone board. I'm like, how do I help out? Mm -hmm. We have to transform Mormonism. And everybody's like, this guy's crazy. <laughs> Who is this guy? And so like, I'm like, all right, I'll do it myself. So in 2005, uh, I, I learned about podcasts. There were a couple podcasts out there, even Mormon themed. Mm. There was uh, the Church is Not True podcast mm. with Mike Norton. Oh, really? Uh, he was an early podcaster. I didn't know that. And then there was the Catholic Mormon podcast, which is about a Mormon that converted to Catholicism. Mm. There was This Mormon Life. There were just a few emerging podcasts out there. Mm. And I was like, I, I'm going to do this. Mm. This is a great way. And I thought, I was very strategic. I picked more, I could have picked anything. The first domain I bought, I think was called A Thoughtful Faith mm. after a book that I'd read about progressive Mormonism. Um, but I, I could have chose any domain name because back then you could buy any domain name. But I picked Mormon Stories be because I thought instead of being a pundit, instead of like preaching to people, mm -hmm. which is only going to alienate them, which is only going to create resistance, um, 
what's a sort of sneaky way I can hook people into wanting to learn about something that usually is threatening mm. and scary. And I thought, stories. We are engineered biologically to sit around a campfire and listen to stories. Mm. That's, that's how we evolved yeah. over millennia. Mm. And stories are very um, pernicious or insidious in the sense that they're engaging. Once someone starts telling a story, you want to mm -hmm. you want to hear the ending, mm -hmm. and they they don't just inform, but they inspire and they pull the emotion. Because mm -hmm. I think I knew by then that that you know from the Bible bashing days, mm -hmm. making intellectual arguments mm -hmm. was never going to move the needle. Mm -hmm. You have to move people emotionally mm -hmm. to move the needle, and so stories are like Trojan horses. Mm -hmm. You can deliver the the thinking and the information when it's wrapped in a story that moves someone emotionally. You captivate their attention, you move them emotionally, then they're open to the information. And that's, that was the wow. strategy behind Mormon Stories. Wow. And so I uh, bought that microphone in 2005 and um, recorded my first episode, which was telling my mission story. I didn't interview anyone, I just mm. told my oh. mission story. Mm. And that was my very first episode. And I just, I remember like got it already and bought the microphone, but you know, used Audacity to edit it, like figured out how to use WordPress and the blog, got it already, got a logo. And uh, I just remember like sitting there as I'm about to push that button, you know what I mean? It was like, do I buy the microphone? And then like, do I, do I release this episode? And for me, the range of possibilities was really wide. Mm -hmm. It could have been nothing. No one could have cared. I mean, this was, Podcasts are just now getting yeah. super popular. Yeah. In 2005, no one had ever heard of a podcast, and that was true for years after we started. But I thought this could be nothing, or it could be really small, or it could grow like super big and make a huge difference and maybe even make a dent in the church somehow. And I'm like, but what's for sure is I'm at heavy risk of being excommunicated if I do this. Mm. Um, but. I thought to myself, it, the faith crisis I went through was too painful. And I'd met enough people going through a faith crisis. I'd seen how it can wreck a marriage. I saw how it could lead to suicide. I saw how it could um, just really destroy people. And I thought, number one, the church not being honest about its history, that's unacceptable. And number two, people committing their lives to something that isn't what they think it is, mm -hmm. that's unacceptable. Mm. And if we can just bring it all out in the open, sunlight is the best disinfectant. We can own up to our problems, own up to the weaknesses, talk about it in public. And one of two things will happen. I'll get excommunicated and that'll free me from something that, you know, was, was beautiful, but it was also uh, uh, vexing. Mm -hmm. Or we'll change the church. We'll freaking change the church mm -hmm. and we'll turn Mormonism into progressive reform Mormonism. Okay. And and then the church will be honest and people will know what they're a member of mm -hmm. and will be a more humane, honest, uh, informed, educated church. So push that button and launch my first episode. And uh, we've been going for 13 years. Wow. It is one of the longest running podcasts in the world. Wow. And with the most episodes, because as you know, we have like over 910 wow. episodes now.
Amazing. Yeah. So. Second guest. Yeah. So I, Greg Prince, the author of the book, the, the book, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism mm. had just come out. Mm. Have you read that book? Yeah. It's a groundbreaking yeah, book. Yeah. Where it like admits that like when Bruce R. McConkie came out with Mormon doctrine, mm -hmm. a lot of the other apostles hated it. Mm -hmm. And someone did a commission on the book and they found like hundreds of errors mm. and and told Bruce not to publish it again and he got rebuked. But then Joseph Fielding Smith, his father in law, got more power and ended up publishing it without the church's permission or something weird mm -hmm. like that. And mm -hmm. You Good know, book. What? Good book. <laughs> Interesting book, mm -hmm. yeah. And it talked about Farn Brody and and how David O. McKay, you know, yeah. struggled with his own niece mm -hmm. and whether or not to excommunicate her. It talks about, um, you know, Juanita Brooks and, and, and how they punished her with the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Um, and even Sterling McMurrin and how David O. McKay said, leave him alone, mm -hmm. you know. And it just tells all these amazing mm -hmm. stories about uh intellectual thoughtful mormonism mm. and the dark side and i thought greg was a great guest so i didn't i, held, I had him tell the story of david o mckay mm. it wasn't until a year or two ago that i actually had greg tell his own story oh. but that was my first interview i also like my second interview was with mike with with hiram the fake name of mike norton's podcast companion oh so i interviewed the co-host of the church is not true podcast oh. and you know, Greg Prince told me, don't do it. Don't ever interview an ex-Mormon. Like, that'll ruin your credibility. Mm. But I was just like, we are going to interview both sides. Mm. We're going to tell the full story. Mm. So I'd interview, you know, the Church Not True guy, but then I'd interview uh, John Lynch from FAIR. Mm. So I'd have the apologists, mm. you know, give their side. And mm -hmm. then I interviewed Grant Palmer, mm -hmm. which was really groundbreaking at the time. Mm -hmm. But then I also interviewed Richard Bushman, and Richard Bushman was willing to come on. Yeah. And then I interviewed like Margaret, Margaret and Paul Toscano in the September 6th and, and it just started rolling. We covered feminism in those early years. We covered racism. I interviewed Darius Gray mm -hmm. and Margaret Young about blacks in the priesthood. Wow. I interviewed this guy named Buckley Jepson about uh, how he was gay, but entered into a mixed orientation marriage, mm -hmm. but then got wanted to kill himself. So he had to get divorced from his wife and then he had a partner. And, mm -hmm. you know, this was back in 2000. 5, 2006, mm -hmm. uh, this is the first time on such a large scale that these very controversial topics were being discussed. Mm -hmm. There had always been dialogue, you know, well, not always, but since the 60s, there had been dialogue. And then since the mid-70s, there had been Sunstone Magazine and Sunstone mm -hmm. Symposium. But those, you know, at, at the height of Sunstone Symposium, maybe 10,000 people were attending. Mm -hmm. At the height of it, the yeah. zenith, you know, I don't know what, you know, I don't know what the max publication sort of subscription levels of dialogue was, but I'm guessing it was in the thousands. Yeah. And so, um, you know, once we started picking up, first it was dozens, then it was hundreds, then it was thousands, but it eventually got to tens of thousands. And even, you know, some of my episodes have been downloaded and listened to well over 100,000 times. Wow. So it was the first time that I was aware of that these very controversial issues started really penetrating the skin of mainstream Mormonism. Wow. And that, uh, that was a really exciting thing. And at the time, if you had asked me, what's your motivation with Mormon stories? I would have said it's to keep people in the church. It's to, 
It's to, there's all these people leaving the church because they're learning about this history and there's a way to stay and I'm going to help them mm. stay. Yeah. And so, yeah, I wanted to change the church, but also wanted to keep people in it. And that fueled me for those first few years. <laughs> I remember people uh, contacting me and saying, you got to talk to John uh, up in Logan. He is, uh, he talks openly, but he wants to show people they can stay. Yeah. So what you're saying, it, it, I remember a firsthand experience with people calling and telling me, he wants to help people stay. So I, I knew that about you before I ever met you. When did you start to see, and is it, was it from word of mouth? Just. <coughs> <coughs> when did I start what? When did you start to see uh, the numbers start to grow into the thousands? Oh, within, you know, within, it was so bizarre. Within that first year, you know, people started coming out of the woodworks. It was like I had punctured this huge water balloon of pain in the sky. Wow. And the podcast was cool. We definitely were getting thousands of downloads in our first year. Mm. But what was crazy is how many people reached out to me. Wow. I started getting one, two, three, four, five emails a day, mm. sometimes dozens of emails a week. Mm. And these would be like five page yeah. emails, epistles that were like their faith journey and their mission and their marriage and their struggles. And they'd talk about masturbation and pornography. They'd talk about, um, you know, uh, eating disorders and trauma and sexual abuse and mm. ecclesia ecclesiastical abuse from their leaders and f doubting issues and divorce problems and and uh, depression and mm. you know cutting and suicide and and you know closeted gay men who had married women and mm -hmm. their kids didn't know and their wives didn't know and they were reaching out to me and mm. it was really um, humbling. And it was depressing because I saw, I had a sense. I'm like, I can't be the only guy who's going through this. And okay, I've met a few people, but like, how big is this problem? And all of a sudden I realized, because Fawn Brody's book was published in like 45. Yeah, yeah. It's not, you know, and the Tanner started in the 60s. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like this information hasn't been available, yeah, right? Yeah. But somehow before the internet, they were able to label it and ghettoize it in a way to where no one would dare look at it. Mm -hmm. Or if you did, you could marginalize those people, run them out of the church yeah. and smear them so that, you know, uh, you could keep people innocent and blind and kind of ignorant yeah. and, and following, obedient. So, so when all this, these people come out of the woodwork, I got overwhelmed. I felt there's a scene in a Superman movie where like Superman is like flying up into space and he can like hear and see all the pain in the world mm -hmm. all at once. Mm -hmm. And there's even kind of a Christ mm. sort of reference where he's floating and his arms are kind of out to the side as if he's on a crucifix mm -hmm. because you feel like he's kind of taking upon him. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to lift myself in that way at all yeah. other yeah. than to say in our own little rincon, in our own little tribe, mm -hmm. I started to feel that tens of thousands of people were suffering mm. uh, in their marriage, in their self-esteem, in their sexuality, in their mental health. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, this is, this is incredibly unacceptable. Mm. But I was like, what do I do when somebody comes to me and is addicted to drugs or sex or cutting or 
about to get divorced, like, I don't know how to help these people. Mm -hmm. um, so that's when I started thinking I, maybe instructional technology wasn't hmm. the career for me. Yeah. So I, I got a job with MIT to kind of make the bills, got my master's. I started to stop the podcast a couple times. Mm. Early, I was super excited, but then I'd have people tell me that they left the church over the podcast. Mm. You know, first they'd write and say, oh, I'm so excited. You've given me a way I can stay. And then I'd wait nine months or 12 months. And then it'd be like, I'm like, hey, how's that staying going? And they'd be like, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't keep hanging on. I couldn't mm -hmm. keep it up. It just, it got too taxing. It got too hard. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes those people would like, their marriage would end up unraveling mm. after they left the church. Mm -hmm. And my immediate reaction was, I'm, I'm ruining families. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm taking people out of the church, and I'm ruining families. And I, probably twice or three times, I shut the podcast down. Mm -hmm. A couple times, I think I took it off the internet completely. Mm -hmm. Just like so freaked out that I was like, really impacting people's lives in very tangible ways. I love the positive emails. Mm -hmm. And there were thousands of people saying, I'm active now and I'm faithful and I'm happy. But it was the the ones where that didn't work out that yeah. I just would would really take responsibility for. Yeah. And and so it was a little bit back and forth for those, you know, between two thousand five and, and two thousand ten. Mm -hmm. It was a little bit off and on, stop and start. Mm -hmm. Couple, it was so alienating. Can you imagine? You maybe you've done this. It's just like hey, everybody. I'm not doing this anymore. So go away and leave me alone. And I'm done. Thank you very much. And just I do it every week. <laughs> alienate your listeners. Yes. Close shop. Yes. Say I want to walk away. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, it was. Do you guys hear that? I'm not alone in this. He gets it. So keep going. Yeah. So. so First, what yeah. was the uh, one Margie in the family? They're like, hey, Dad, great. Uh, well, the kids were kind of young at this yeah. point. They're, it was always uncomfortable oh. in the family because, you know, it's controversial mm -hmm. and Margie's private mm -hmm. and it's, it's a very public thing. People started coming to our house. People started to want to have lunch and dinner with me all the time. Mm -hmm. And Margie's just like, what is this? And you know, and, and margie has been very supportive, but there were just times where it just wore. I was always obsessed about it. I was waking up at 2 and 3 a.m. to what's my next episode and what's got to read books and study and figure out this web stuff and take it to the next level. I was obsessed. I mean, if if you've ever known someone who's obsessed or seen a movie or been obsessed mm -hmm. yourself mm -hmm. for many, many years, I couldn't sleep past three. Mm -hmm. And I'd be up working mm -hmm. and I'd work all day long into the night and never stop thinking about it. I'd be at dinner eating and people are telling me these great stories and I'd just be like, you know, who's someone I can interview and yeah. how do I move the needle? How do I make a bigger difference? Yeah. And and so that, that was hard on the family. Mm -hmm. But then there was a point where Margie was just like, can you just move on? Mm -hmm. Like, get over it. Mm -hmm. Get over it. <laughs> like there's a huge big like margie when she stopped believing the church was true she would still attend but for her um you know she's like yoga and buddhism and mm -hmm. mindfulness and Brene brown and mm -hmm. you know inspirational books and mm -hmm. she just moved on mm -hmm. so intellectually she was dead to mormonism but mm -hmm. um 
but she was still attending. So she was just like, can't you just get over this? Can we just move on? And I just, I was like a Rottweiler. I was like a pit bull. I was not going to let my, open my jaws. I was going to, you know, I was just going to, wow. I was going to, I was going to take it wherever it went. Mm. I wasn't going to let go. So that was hard. Mm. Um, uh, first guest that caused some notice from the church. You know, the Grant Palmer was the first guest that really shook things mm. because he was so hated. Yeah. He was so hated it by vilified him. Super vilified. Yeah. And I thought his book it, it wasn't like you know, Yale level history, mm. but I thought it was good enough mm -hmm. to give you a really good sense for how the Book of Mormon was put together. Mm -hmm. You finish that book and you're like, "Oh, forever I've been taught the Book of Mormon so magical and powerful and mysterious." Yeah. There's no way anyone could have ever put it together, let alone an ignorant farm boy. Mm -hmm. And he just lays out the case really clearly about the different, you know, the five main sources of inspiration for the Book of Mormon. Yeah. And you read through that and you're like, okay, the Book of Mormon could have been created. And, and if you actually understood the, the soup or the milieu that was the, the 1830s, mm -hmm. this is sort of what you would have gotten if you just sort of thrown all that into a little stew and, sure. and and mixed it up you kind of would have predicted yeah. a book like that yeah um but yeah dan peterson and the in the fair crowd mm. really demonized me after that point oh and uh and there's been a a certain level of hatred and animosity you know between me and apologists mm. from that point on mm. fortunately i was i was always able to do a michael quinn or a grant palmer mm -hmm but then counterbalance it with a Richard Bushman or a mm. Terrell Givens. Mm. And I worked really hard to always balance the challenging, you know, the challenging ones with the faithful ones. So I do, uh, I do, you know, Todd Compton about polygamy, but then I do um, Brian Hales, you know, mm. the, the apologist on polygamy. Mm. And I would always just be very careful to do Margaret Toscano feminist, but then mm. Claudia Bushman feminist. Mm. And, and that was my, my shtick was to just ride that middle line mm -hmm. for as long as I could ride it because you would maximize the audience. Sure. The you know, non-believers would be super excited because you were giving exposure to talking about controversial topics, mm -hmm. but you do enough faithful stuff so that the believers feel safe and they feel like you're balanced. Smart. And you can draw the biggest audience. So I'd get grief from like, you know, Jeff Ricks of like post-Mormon and there'd be these dudes that just didn't get it yeah they'd be like, well you're you're shilling for the church and mm -hmm. you're a hypocrite and you're lying and i'm like i think it's called strategy yeah i think it's called effectiveness i yeah. think it's called reach yeah. and penetration yeah. <laughs> these were the things that uh i was lo most loyal to mm. effectiveness was my goal mm. and i was going to have build the biggest audience i could possibly build yeah and is that still <clears throat> yeah i mean Obviously, you know, whenever, we, you know, at some point. So, so the first time, uh, you know, Bishop Farmer, this probably would have been a year or two into it. He, you know, my first bishop started, you know, questioning me. All I did was freaking go to my listeners and say, write me a letter if I've helped you stay in the church. And I got like a thousand letters. Wow. And so I literally printed them all out, bound them into a packet, wow. said, here, Bishop Farmer, here are a thousand people who say I've helped them stay in the church. Wow. Do you want to, you know, do you want to have 
more discussions. Mm. He was like, we're good. Wow. You know, I'm going to leave you alone. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, that was the first time. Uh, I was never, he, in fact, he said to me, I'm like, do you know any of this stuff that I've been talking, do you know about the Book of Mormon, Book of Abraham, polygamy, polyandry? He's like, honestly, John, I feel like if I got into this stuff, it might challenge my testimony. Mm -hmm. So if it's all the same to you, I'd rather not mm -hmm. learn or know anything that you've been studying. Wow. And and he took a very conscious, ignorant mm -hmm. approach, sure. which is fine. Yeah. But yeah, we never got into it. Then mm -hmm. it wasn't until uh, 2011, 2012, when I started really becoming sort of flirting with atheism and agnosticism, angry at the church, uh, because the more I learned, the more problematic. It's just the rabbit hole goes deeper and deeper. Mm -hmm. And church, when I learned about the LGBT suicides and the the mixed orientation marriages and the way learned about feminism and misogyny, learned about how racist the Book of Mormon is and how you know racist the church has been even today. Mm -hmm. uh, I just started, and then I just had all this Superman level pain that I kept being exposed to. Mm all these divorces, all these lives being thrown in chaos, all these people discovering this stuff at 40 and 50 and 60 and saying, what, it, what, is, what has become of my life? I would have made very different life choices mm -hmm. if I hadn't have been caught in this thing under false pretenses. Mm -hmm. And it just started to overwhelm me mm -hmm. to the point where I just said, uh, I, I gotta turn up the heat. So I started being more strident, more honest about my lack of belief, about my skepticism. I started being willing to criticize the brethren more. I started being, you know, because that was my rule forever. Just never criticize the brethren and never personally own up to challenging the church's truth claims. Mm. And if I never challenge the church's truth claims and if I never criticize the brethren, they'll, they'll leave me alone. And that, that worked for like mm -hmm. nine, nine mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. But then I, but then, um, I, you know, the church did Prop 8, and I, I was so angry at the church for, for intervening in a sovereign state with their legislative process, and I, uh, so I, I became a public advocate for same-sex marriage, and then uh, I, I supported Kate Kelly in the ordained women movement, mm -hmm. and, um, and I started just openly saying, I don't know if there's a God, I don't, I don't know if Jesus really lived, I don't know. I'm not sure. I think the, I like the church's version of atonement. For me, the church's version of the atonement is actually distasteful. Mm. And uh, I, I don't think this is the one and only true church anymore. And I think the Book of Mormon is, is not historical. Mm. And as I started being more open about my own disbeliefs mm. and being more of an activist, instead of just trying to play that neutral ground, mm -hmm. uh, the church started to be really concerned. And mm. so that's when in kind of uh, 2013, 2014, uh, the final uh, disciplinary council sort of thing was kicked into, into motion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at that, can you talk about that at all? Yeah. Yeah. Did you defend? Did you let them know your thoughts? What was the... Interestingly, so in 2012, my marriage almost fell apart. Uh, it, it, I just, going back just a tiny bit. So by 2012, we, we were holding conferences all over the United States. We had Boise, we had, you know, uh, Phoenix, we, you know, uh, 
California, San Diego, we were we were taking a road show of workshops. Mormon Stories was at its zenith. You know, it was starting to become a really big thing with tens of thousands of listeners. And um, I was starting to like, and, and I was having this really deep faith crisis where I wasn't sure if God existed. And my morality was tied to my, my church beliefs. Mm. And all of a sudden, if God didn't exist, is it bad if, is it wrong to cheat on your wife? Mm -hmm. Because if there's not a God or angels watching, and if your wife doesn't know and you're healthy about it, mm -hmm. is it immoral? Mm -hmm. does, does anyone care? And I, you know, because my morality wasn't intrinsic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm here about my friends, like having all these, they get divorced and then they're dating again and they're in their 40s and mm -hmm. they're having great sex and they're starting mm -hmm. to try weed and alcohol and having a lot of fun. And I'm like, wow, that kind of looks fun a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I didn't do any of that stuff ever. <laughs> and, and I had this real dark night of the soul where I just felt completely lost. And, and, and that's when my son was eight. Winston turned eight and I wanted to baptize my son. And, uh, and the state president said no. Hmm. And, uh, and that was like my, that was like disciplinary, that was like disciplinary council threats part two where he's like I'm not gonna let you baptize your son and I'm really concerned about your beliefs and so for about a year I had to meet with my state president every week wow. where he tried to rehabilitate me and part of that was I had almost lost my marriage mm -hmm. uh, I you know started making bad decisions mm -hmm. kind of like maybe you did at oh, one yeah. point in your life definitely did yeah yep. I had that experience that many teenagers have yeah I had that experience um, and I started to just uh, lose myself. Yeah. And so the, it, interestingly, I repented to the state president and he wanted to rehabilitate me. So we spent a year with him meeting with me weekly to, to convert me back to, and by the end, he felt good about it. And I think the church was pressuring him to excommunicate me, mm. but he wouldn't do it. Mm. And so ultimately he let me baptize my son. I, by 2012, I was back in full fellowship. Mm. And I was active again because I'd gone out of the church a couple times for about a year at a time each time. So that, and, and then interestingly, he's released before his full 10 year mark. Whoa. And then uh, L. Whitney Clayton and Elder Ballard come to our stake twice in a six month period and train the church leaders on how to deal with apostates. Wow. And they talk to him about ordained women and they talk to him about Mormon stories wow. and they show this bubble chart that I didn't learn until a year or two later mm -hmm. existed. They show the members of my stake, this bubble chart that lists John DeLynn wow. as one of the enemies of the church mm -hmm. along with Denver Snuffer and ordained women. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then all of a sudden he won't, you know, my state president won't let me renew my temple recommend. And I'm like, why? I want to go to the temple. They just made changes. I want to see what the new changes are. He's like, I'm not comfortable giving you a temple recommend. He gets released. And then they call a new state president. Mm. Brian King is his name. Mm. And, uh, and he was literally called to excommunicate me. Wow. And that's why they chose him. Wow. And it's like, it's like, Mark Jensen, if you won't excommunicate John Dolan, we will release you and we will, wow. we will choose a state president who will. 
And so that's, that's kind of how things happen. So that's, I gave my TED talk supporting same-sex marriage in, in 2013. I signed the ordained women thing and by, <clears throat> and by January, February of 2014, I was summoned to a disciplinary council. And so, yeah, the disciplinary council, uh, it took them, it was really weird because Kate Kelly and I got our letters within a day of each other, mm -hmm. both notified of a, of a disciplinary council. Mm -hmm. And we went directly to the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And it was a, it was a national, international story. Mm -hmm. And the church got freaked out about that because it made it look like it was a coordinated oh. purge. And so they literally delayed my disciplinary council for like six or eight months. That's why they did that. So they could excommunicate Kate uh, and then have this big breathing room before they, they didn't want this big momentum and this big media firestorm. They wanted to kind of let that die down and then hopefully people would lose interest. So I met with my state president three times and tried to reason with him. It was a, it was a kangaroo court. He knew what the orders were. Mm. He had no interest in listening to my point of view. He cherry-picked statements from the past to put together. Uh, you know, I had repented of all the mistakes. I had confessed to the stake president. I had become more faithful again, but he cherry-picked statements I had made years before to try and build this case. Mm. And what it came down to was, um, <clears throat> you know, you know, obviously my bishop told me that ordained women and my public support of same-sex marriage were what kicked off the this final disciplinary council. Mm -hmm. They told me that. But I started, that's the first thing I told the media, is that they're excommunicating me because I'm supporting gays and women. Mm -hmm. Well, that looks really awful for the church. Sure. So immediately the conversation changed with my stake president to my past you know, statements about not believing necessarily in an anthropomorphic God or not necessarily in a, a resurrection or an atonement like the church teaches or not necessarily in a historical Book of Mormon, but it was all a ruse. What it was really about was the reach of Mormon Stories podcast. Wow. And the way I know that's true is because, and by that time I'd been on Good Morning America, I'd been on VH1, you know, wow. I'd been in, covered in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. They were asking me to comment on Mitt Romney's candidacy for presidency, mm -hmm. like I, NPR, like I had, I'd been on Radio West, I'd probably been on Radio West like 11 times. Mm -hmm. Like I was having this huge, mm -hmm tens to hundreds of thousands of people listening, way too many people were being impacted. Mm. And what it came down to, he, he just basically said, shut down Mormon stories and don't ever speak up in public again. And that's, that's what it came down to. He didn't really care about what I believed. Mm. Oh, and he said, stop supporting causes that run counter to the mm. church's teachings. Mm. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, ordained women mm. and uh, same-sex marriage. Mm. And I'm like, okay, am I going to sell out the women? No. Am I going to sell out my LGBT brothers and sisters that are killing themselves? No. And then I'm like, can I, am I going to go quiet? And I thought back to that Man for All Seasons movie with Sir Thomas More and Henry VIII. And I'm like, I'd rather march to the gallows than sell out my integrity. Mm. You know? I, do I want to be excommunicated? No. Mm. Do I want to get kicked out of my tribe? No. Do I love this church? Absolutely. Mm. But but selling out my integrity was just, was a bridge too far. Mm. So I told them no. And they waited those five or six months. And then the disciplinary council, which was February, 2015. And uh, what, what did you ask about that? 
I was just on our break. You summarized it really well. Uh, that's not what I was saying. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you yeah. summarize it? Now? So those last couple years, between 2012 and 2015, I attended church. We were active. When they called the disciplinary council on me for the final time, my second, my, my, my first daughter was planning to go to BYU. She had graduated from seminary. My second daughter was Laurel's president. My third daughter was Beehive president. Wow. Like, we were in it up until the very end. Wow. I wasn't, you know, believing everything. I wasn't doing everything, but we were still very engaged. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> so anyway, sitting in the pews was very tormenting for me because I'd hear misstatements about Joseph Smith. I'd hear, you know, false teachings. I'd hear them refer to Lamanites in dark skin or how LGBT people are the sign of the times. Or I'd hear, glorious, hear them sing praise to the man mm. about a guy who was like mm. propositioning. He was a sexual predator. I mean, there's what else is a sexual predator than what Joseph Smith was? Right. He was, he was, not only approaching other men's wives, he was approaching young women. You know, he was having sex with multiple people and using his power to manipulate and coerce people to have sex with him. And then he was smearing and maligning anyone who yeah. crossed him, like classic cult mm -hmm. sexual predator behavior. And we don't like to use those terms cult or sexual predator, but any objective reading of history is going to acknowledge that that's what's going on. So I'm sitting there in church on the one hand, getting my PhD in psychology, where I'm seeing the LGBT suicides, I'm seeing the divorce, I'm seeing how these young youth are tormented over masturbation, mm -hmm. to the point of wanting to cut their mm -hmm. penises off because they can't stop masturbating. Mm -hmm. It is that serious mm -hmm. to the really scrupulous, highly you know conscientious sure. Mormons. And then I'm seeing the church deceive people, but then I'm also enjoying how what the great influence it is in my life. So I'm thrashing back and forth. And it was really starting to kind of rip me apart. Mm -hmm. And so did I want to be excommunicated? No. Um, but, uh, you know, calling a disciplinary, disciplinary council on me was in some ways a very uh, fortunate and charitable act. Mm -hmm. Because as barbaric as it is, as mean-spirited and as impersonal and as unchristlike mm -hmm. as it was, um, it cut the cord that I wasn't able to cut myself. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of one of the worst things that's ever happened to me. Uh, I would have never chose it. And I'm super grateful that they did it because life's been amazing since then. But the disciplinary council itself, 15 men around a table, me and Margie, and it was just a kangaroo court. I had five witnesses, my mom, my dad, my brother, Bill Bradshaw, and Mike Uband, a guy in my ward. Mm -hmm. They testified on my behalf. I testified. They were just like picking their teeth and like <laughs> scratching their rear and looking at their watches. Wow. There was no six for and six against. It no. was a kangaroo court and they were just there to get the job done. They didn't even want to look me in the eye. Wow. And uh, and they they pulled the trigger and uh, and they did they did a huge favor. But that labeled Mormon stories as an apostate. Yeah entity yeah. and me as an apostate yeah. and you know there there is an impact to that and we can talk about that if you want but um we're going to talk about it next week when we do our third part and and the most engaging part probably between with john and i uh and so join us next week for that